Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We want to help shift the social change conversation from critics to builders. We want to shift the metaphor of diversity work in America from melting pot and battleground to potluck. We want to help facilitate in the next great chapter of American religion. We think we're done with the chapter Judeo-Christian. It did good work in its time. It's time to move into interfaith America. Uh, And we want to convince people that you defeat the things you do not love by building the things you do, and that that is a profound opportunity to be able to build something better. It is holy, it is sacred, and we should take that opportunity and be grateful for it. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome to Forward, the founder and president of Interfaith America, member of President Obama's inaugural Faith Council, and the author of the phenomenal new book, We Need to Build. Amen to that. Field Notes for Diverse Democracy, Mr. Ibu Patel. Welcome, Ibu. Andrew, I can't tell you how excited I am to be on this podcast. Thank you. Are you kidding, man? I'm excited to have you. I mean, you've been uh, building an awesome organization for years and years, helping to cultivate religious diversity in uh, America, or not cultivate and maybe cultivate acceptance of it, <laughs> since, since the religious diversity has happened without you. Um, but I loved your book in part because you did something that I try to do when I write, um, which is tell the truth, <laughs> including sometimes that but like the truth is rough. Um, but uh, how did you let, let's give people a brief summary of how you came to this work and, and what Interfaith America does. Sure. So I was uh, an activist in college. Uh, and that was in that was the mid nineteen nineties. It was another moment of kind of racial reckoning uh, of of identity based politics of uh, of social justice work, and I got involved in in kind of the warp and woof of that. And it was an exciting moment. Uh, but the problem is that that my initiation into activism was of the anger-based variety. And I am not by nature an angry person. And I don't think that tearing down the system is the best way to approach social change. But that was kind of the sector of activism that I 
first got caught in, and it was faith-based approaches that kind of helped bring me out of it. And I found myself, uh, um, after this kind of angry approach to activism, I found myself in the company of uh, of people who were practicing engaged Buddhism and people involved in the Catholic worker movement and people who spoke of repairing the world from the Jewish tradition. And I was just really inspired by all of these diverse faith-based approaches to changing the world. It felt to me like they loved people more than they hated the system, which was different from the other activists that I had spent time with. The more that I kind of got involved in in that kind of work, the more it occurred to me that the diversity movement that I'd been involved in in college paid no attention to religion, although religion inspired all of this really profound social change work. And so the notion of what is it what does it look like to bring people from different religions together to act on their shared value of positive social change, that's where the genesis of what was a once Interfaith Youth Corps, uh, which was the name the organization was founded under, and what turned into what is now Interfaith America, that's that that's kind of the, the genesis of it. Uh, so you're an Ismaili Muslim, uh, and I, I visited the Ismaili Center in Houston, which I oh, urge, I yeah. urge any, anyone who's anywhere near Houston to check it out because it, it, it's really beautiful. Um, and you detail growing up um, in the Midwest uh, as an Indian Muslim um, and experiences of racism where they would call you uh, Hindu, Hindu, and then you'd talk to your mom about it. And she's like, we're not Hindu. And, the, <laughs> and then you would say, well, like, I don't think that's where they they really attend, mom. It's just, um, you know, racism. Um, and I was reminded of the way I grew up. So you and I are contemporaries. We're uh, both in our mid to late 40s. Uh, I grew up in an upstate New York town that was predominantly, almost exclusively white. Um, and, and I got called uh, chink and ching chong and stuff like that um, fairly regularly. Um, and, you know, I, I responded to it differently than you did. Uh, can you describe your your uh, response? So it so the racism that I experienced growing up was ugly and it hurt. And there were uh, many times when the middle school lunchroom felt like, you know, the fifth circle of hell. Uh, and and one of the ways that I responded to it was by trying to be as white as possible, which meant, you know, back when I was uh, growing up, it meant playing basketball and listening to a certain kind of music, but also very was that hip hop or what, what, what it was, was uh, it was it was glam metal it was glam metal you know and there are there are there are kind of so high quality what bands are we talking about like uh yeah like uh, well back then it was white motley crew and poison and white snake and then you know there's there's quality stuff like metallica whether or not it's your cup of tea it's there's you know quality to the music all right so um things we had in common uh i i also tried to play sports in part so i could um, be more American. I felt self-conscious about being this scrawny Asian kid. Um, I also got angry, which I, I got the sense you did as well. There was one very cutting story you told of, I believe it was your uh, younger cousin showed up and in, instead of being her protector, you kind of teased her along with other people and she was like, what the heck is going on? And you were just like, hey, that, that this will uh, make me seem more of the uh, the normal American crowd, if I also am piling on. And I was like, whoa, like, uh, you know, the, the fact that you admitted, I mean, you know, obviously it's like we're kids and people do do things. I never had a cousin show up, so I don't know what I would have done. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, there, but there were things like where you're reading it, um, where uh, it, it, it was deeply relatable 
And now you're a parent like I am. You have two boys. How old are your boys? 12 and 15. Well, a bit older than mine. You got an earlier start. Mine are 10 and 7. Um, uh, and, and you write in your book about some of the ways where even now you, you still accommodate various things uh, just to accomplish goals or make life easier. Um, I remember your father talked about owning a Subway franchise and someone was like, why Subway? And it was like, well, you know, you can uh, just seem American because when someone comes in, then... Uh, you know, like they, they don't really think about who owns it. Um, but the, there was another episode you related of um, someone not wanting you to make their sandwich. Um, they wanted the white sandwich maker to make the sandwich. And you put two and two together. You're like, I think it's because they, they prefer the white person make the sandwich. Yeah. I mean, Andrew, you read deep into the book and you're remembering a lot of the stories. And I'm really grateful for that. And, and you know, one of the things I'm very blunt about in the book is is just the ugliness of racism and the way that that it affected me and also didn't entirely define me and and you know I grew up in a household in which m- my parents were very clear our culture is a privilege our faith is a privilege and you should look at it as such and because I think they were immigrants and because life in America was better than life elsewhere. And I think that it's important to kind of underscore this, that when people talk about America, the question is, what's your reference point? And if your reference point is heaven, America is light years away. But if your reference point is a country where you can't breathe the air or drink the water, then this nation looks pretty good. And that's not an argument for complacency. That's an argument for possibility. What can you build from here? How can you grow from here? So I want to be really clear-eyed about my experiences of racism, about what my kids now are going through, but also also clear-eyed about it doesn't have to – it did not define me. It doesn't have to define me, and I do not only have to react to that, that, that my, my culture is not about opposing somebody else's hatred of me. My culture is about growing – into who I am meant to be. You know, as I, as I say to my kids, I don't want you to hate Islamophobia more than you love Islam. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's uh, a beautiful sentiment and, and obviously spot on. I mean, the theme of we need to build really is about trying to figure out what the beautiful social order we're aspiring for is, as opposed to uh, just trying to tear things down. And uh, you talk about college a fair amount, you relate your own college experiences. So you go to college, you're um, taught a particular academic approach to uh, racism and uh, opposing it. And I, I, this is one of the major themes of your book, and I can sense one of the major things you're concerned about is that right now there are a lot of people who are going to college who are taught to critique. Um, and you yourself were a product of that. Um, but then someone, after you were critiquing an interfaith gathering and you said, look, this should be much more young and representative and dynamic and, and involved in the next generation, then someone put their hand on your shoulder and said, you should build that. And then you said, okay, I will build that. That was uh, almost 25 years ago. It was, it was June of 1998. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's really the kind of, you know, that's the creation myth of, of, of Interfaith America, my organization, and it just happens to be true, unlike, say, the Plymouth Rock myth, you know? It, you know, it happens to be true that I was uh, a light things on fire activist, and I did this at this 
interfaith gathering. And of course, I'd gone to this gathering because I wanted to drink from the well of positive, faith-inspired, love-people-first social change. But I had been so deeply uh, uh, kind of steeped in this approach of raise your fist and tell other people what they're doing wrong, that when you know, it was one boring panel of senior theologians after another. I stood up, raised my fist, and I was like, you people are boring. Where's the young people? Where's the edge? Where's the energy? Where's the dynamism? And that's when this woman, uh, uh, Yolan Trevino, approached me and was like, hey, you know, it's powerful what you're putting out there. You should build that. And and actually, my first thought, Andrew, was, was um, somebody's calling my bluff. You know, oh, no. <laughs> and and I actually think that that there's a lot of critique out there that is deathly afraid of somebody calling their bluff, and and that is not my critique of critique. It is it is my way of um, explaining self righteousness, my own and other people's. That the more self righteous somebody is in in calling out things that are terrible, there's a possibility that there's a deep fear about being asked to take responsibility and to be the one in charge. But, you know, we need to not, we need to not just tell people what's wrong with the police. We need to tell, we need to have people who can be in charge of public safety. Like public safety is a really important thing. And, and, telling people what's wrong with one segment of the public safety ecosystem without the corresponding ability to build up that ecosystem into something that works, into, into something that protects people, that's, that's the challenge we need to solve, right? This, is, this doesn't mean the critique isn't valid. It just means it's incomplete. And, and you know, I've, I have a friend who um, is a professor uh, at an elite East Coast school uh, in, in the Boston area. It's not Harvard. Um, it's another one. And, and he said, you know, my big fear is that we're teaching our students who pay $75,000 a year in tuition, room, and board, we teach them to critique the things that kids go to regional public universities to do. People go to Framingham State to learn how to become teachers, social workers, and nurses, and people come to our school to learn how to critique those folks. And that just seems unfair. It just seems unfair. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep... Let's you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high-quality mattress... It is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. 
That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So how old were you when Yolanda said to you, hey, you should start this yourself. Yeah, her, her name was Yolande and 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 uh, 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 Yolande Trevino. And actually, we just had our 20th anniversary celebration at, of Interfaith America and brought her here from LA and, and had a chance to thank her in person. It was really beautiful. I was, it was June of 1998, I was 22. Yeah, was so 22. so a 22-year-old trying to build something, I know this from experience because I tried it or tried a version of it uh, a couple of years later excruciatingly hard. Yeah. So so what the heck was the first thing you did as a 22-year-old when you said, okay, I guess I will do this thing? So what I did was was I ran, or I was involved in the group of people running the youth programs of these adult interfaith organizations I had critiqued. So I, I want to point out not so much the irony of that because I was the guy raising my fist telling people, telling them that they were terrible and boring and backwards. I want to point out the generosity of those folks, right? So so they could have told me to go take a hike, right? I was not particularly polite in my critique. Instead, they were like, hey, why don't you come and make this better? Why don't you attach your caboose to our locomotive? And I learned how to do interfaith work by helping to run the youth program at the United Religions Initiative and at the Parliament of the World's Religions, et, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a fancy scholarship. I was I was at Oxford on on you know the the on the on the money left by some old British colonialist, and I used that money to go around the world and learn the methodology of interfaith work. And then when I finally finished my PhD, it was just a few months after September 11th. I realized that that this. The world kind of needed an organization that focused on bringing young people inspired by diverse faiths together in service and social action projects that was all about interfaith bridge building. And actually, the world was ready for it, right? So Tony Blair paid attention and Bill Clinton paid attention. And we, you know, did uh, um, a project with Queen Rania of Jordan and all kinds of inspiring things. Well, so you really met the moment because after 9-11, uh, there, there must have been an incredible swell of interest in uh, helping people understand different faiths, particularly Muslim uh, Islam at that time. Yeah. And, you know, for, for, for a long time, I played the friendly Muslim on TV. You know, I, I would joke that, that I, was the, I was the Muslim that, that uh, didn't scare white people. I was the Muslim Mr. Rogers. And the truth, Andrew, is, is that's actually who I am by personality. I wasn't just playing a character on TV. Like I, I'm genuinely kind of a mild mannered person. Uh, uh, I'm generally a person, I'm genuinely a person who believes that Islam's core value is mercy and that applying that mercy in the world through kindness uh, and through love and hospitality and compassion is, is the way to go. And I'm also totally tenacious about organization building. And a, and a huge part of my book, We Need to Build, is about the tenacity of building an organization and the strategy involved. And so, you know, I would do things like, even if there's kind of ambient interest in a different side of Islam or an interfaith work, you still have to go after it, right? And so nobody's going to hand you anything. I remember telling people about Interfaith Youth Corps back when it was named that, and them saying things like, we're never going to fund you. You know, it's interesting. I'll give you advice when we're going to fund you. I would find out the conferences those people were going to be at, and I would show up at those conferences, 
and sit next to them, right? Not to <laughs> hug them, right? But to communicate my seriousness, my tenacity. And that was an era, you'll remember this, where Ashoka and social entrepreneurship was celebrated. David Bornstein had just written the book, uh, um, How to Change the World. Wendy Kopp and Teach for America were were widely celebrated. Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank. It was kind of the era of building things, right? Social change was creating a better way to do something and then building an institution to that. And and I would say that I was very much formed in that era. Like my initial formation as an activist was through angry activism in the early 90s. And then it was through faith-based activism uh, uh, with, you know, the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and Mother Teresa and Dorothy Day and the like. And then it was social entrepreneurship and building an institution to, to a better way of doing things. And that's really what I write about in the book is what does it mean to, to, to not tell people what they're doing wrong? You know, the goal of social change is not a more ferocious revolution. It is a better social order. It's a better way of doing things, whether that's healthcare or education or arts or racial equity. What does it mean to create a better way of doing things and then to build an institution that can advance that pattern change? That is a really hard thing to do. And self-righteousness will not get you very far in that endeavor, right? What will get you far is long-term strategy and day-to-day chopping wood and carrying water. Yeah, you tell stories about the early years of what became Interfaith America, and you're very blunt about it. Um, Someone advised you saying, look, you can't be afraid of money, but you can't uh, be crazy for it either. Um, And yet you did what uh, most organizations do. And as someone who's run a nonprofit, I could relate very directly to this, is that someone would come and write you a grant to do certain work. And you'd be like, sure, you know, it's sort of related, like, let's go do it. It was only later when you uh, uh, got certain partners that you started to say no to more things, strip away some um, projects that weren't core to the vision uh, that you then ended up formulating. How many years did it take for you to get from uh, being responsive to uh, having the, this firmer vision? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, seven, eight years. So the first three or four years of Interfaith Youth Corps was really uh, um, building a methodology that was 1998 to 2002. We get our first grant in 2002. <clears throat> it's about seven years of running entrepreneurial projects, some super exciting things like a youth exchange with Queen Runya of Jordan and a Faiths Act fellowship with Tony Blair, but you know, some totally random things like the foundation for general for General Motors gives us a grant to do, I don't know, grassroots work in four or five cities that's kind of totally random, but it's a grant, so we do it. The State Department is literally constantly calling us like on a monthly basis to do interfaith youth projects around the world. And so we're in Central Asia, and we're in Eastern Europe, and we're in the Middle East, and we're like all over the place, right? And we're, we don't really have expertise in this. We're just super entrepreneurial. And it's not until 2009, 2010, at which point three things happen. One is a consulting firm does a pro bono strategic plan for us and just basically says, hey, listen, you're not making a long-term difference anywhere. You need to have a you need to have a long-term strategic goal. You need to have a plan to reach it. It's not especially genius, 
but it is very clarifying. So that's one thing that happens. Uh, the second thing that happens is we, I, I get an appointment on, on President Obama's inaugural faith council. So there's kind of a, a national profile and a level of seriousness that comes along with that appointment, not to mention like a whole new set of contacts. And, you know, you're like literally in the Oval Office in the Roosevelt Room every once in a while. And then finally, there's a really serious philanthropist named David Einhorn who requests a business plan from us which of course we're able to do because of of the uh, of the strategic plan that that this consulting firm has done for us pro bono, and gives us ten million dollars, and a lot of that is tenacity and a lot of it is luck. The ability to have a serious amount of money, to be able to then articulate a five year vision and to build a team to go after that vision. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Oh, so here's where I want to dig in a little bit because it's uh, it'll be uh, fun and interesting. So first, let me say I, I... admire you and your work a great deal and you've helped a lot of people in this country and i a thousand percent agree with your critique of the prevalence of critique as like the the mode of expression for young people in academic context in particular where they're just like hey you guys are screwing this up in this way and that way uh and then the flip side has to be like okay like let's actually build something let's solve the problem let's do something solutions oriented um and you became this social entrepreneur um and you're one of the most successful social entrepreneurs in the country um but there are all of these young people that actually want to follow this general path in terms of social entrepreneurship if you say social entrepreneurship on a college campus like all these folks will be like oh yeah like that that's the dream that's the ideal um, but of a, a group of people who set out to be a social entrepreneur the way that you did, um, it, it's such a rough road because like the, the marketplace for it, uh, is 
wildly divergent, not terribly well well resourced. The message of the book, which uh, like I, I love, is like, look, we need to build. Like we need to build things. Um, another message of the book is like it's super hard to build, which I totally agree with because I've done it <laughs> a couple of times and it's super hard. There is a bit of a gauntlet you're throwing down um, to say to folks like, look, guys, we need to actually try and uh, create better institutions uh, and not just be the bomb throwers or the, um, you know, like the critics. Um, but that, but there's some part of me that's like, man, like, um, you've already been through like this journey. And in your case, you've been through a journey that's longer and more, um, elevated than just about any of us. Um, you must've seen a whole host of people embark on a similar path to yourself, um, at, at different points in time. Um, but then their journey was, was very, very different than yours. So I think building a new institution that is helping to create or revitalize a sector is enormously challenging, and one has to have a significant amount of luck. What I've done is challenging, and I've had a significant amount of luck. Alhamdulillah, praise be to God. <laughs> and what I would say is it is not a gargantuan mountain to climb to improve the civic activity or area of work that you're currently involved in. If you are the director of a summer camp at a YMCA, you can think of better ways to run that summer camp, right? If as that summer camp uh, includes a wider diversity of people, and as you see how the camp might work for some and not others, there are important changes that you can implement that make that a better summer camp. And because you work within an ecosystem called the YMCA or the public schools or the Jewish community centers, or whatever it might be, the ways that you improve the environment in which you are working, the hospital floor, the after-school program, whatever it might be, has a chance of spreading. So what what I've done is a little bit different, right? What Muhammad Yunus did with the Grameen Bank, what Wendy Kopp did with, with Teach for America, what you, Andrew, did with Venture, this is a little bit different, right? There, there are new institutions that are that don't exist, within a vast and well-developed ecosystem that effectively have to build both an institution and an ecosystem. But a lot of what I talk about in We Need to Build is the genius of American civil society, Catholic charities, and Habitat for Humanity, and the, the, the world of Methodist college campuses, et cetera, et cetera. And there is a reasonable chance that if you're involved in social change work, you are working in one of those areas, improve the thing below your feet. Improve the after-school program. Improve the summer camp. Improve the way of doing teacher training. Improve the way of, of, uh, of, of doing nursing. And ask yourself the question, can my civic innovation in the classroom uh, uh, on the hospital floor, can this spread? Right, and so it's what I call a Jane Jacobs approach to social change, rather than a Robert Moses approach. Right now, there's an awful lot of talk about systemic change. I mean, I, on the one hand, this is not an argument for our systems being perfect. It's a recognition that, like, if you're having a hard time running a six-person English department at your, you know, at your local college campus, maybe you should be a little bit like less self-righteous about proposing vast changes for 100 million person systems, 
right? Uh, uh, why not take the approach that Jane Jacobs took to social change, which is ask the question, what's going right locally? What are the environments in which kids play together, in which moms talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera? How can we create more environments like that? As opposed to the Robert Moses approach, which is I'm going to create this perfect system in my boardroom with a group of experts, and then we're going to come out and impose it upon everybody. And who cares if Fifth Avenue is going to run through Washington Square Park? Well, you know, you, you talked about this colleague of yours in, in college where you were both um, uh, on a board together, and he was determined to get a bench outside of the, the dorm. Uh, and he was like, because then people will have some place to sit and they hang out. And then you looked at that and were like, like, come on, that's not like what we should be, <laughs> be, 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 be about. But it sounds like what you just described is that uh, like now uh, older, wiser, you would be like, yeah, that bench is a good idea. I mean, this guy's name was Doug. I, and, and Andrew, I mean, you not only did you read the book, but you like actually paid attention to page after page. I'm really, I'm, I'm really appreciative of that. I'm really honored by that because look, I just have huge admiration for for what you've done. As I told you, like you built an institution, and then and then you brought that ethos to the national stage. And so I just stand in admiration of you. And and like I, you know, it makes my month. And this is my birthday month. It makes my month that you paid such attention to my book. So thank you for that. So, so you know, the the story the story that you're you're relating from my book is, is, uh, University of Illinois uh, has Chief Illini Wick as a, as a mascot, and it's a racist mascot. And as I kind of you know realized that, I made it my literally crusade to like hound everybody within eyesight and earshot about the need to change this mascot. And I was you know, very enamored of the idea that that every minority had a particular stake in this because, you know, this is specifically racist against Native Americans, but anybody, uh, anybody who who didn't who who had who had any kind of skin tone uh, uh, should be able to relate to racial oppression. And so I would hound this guy Doug about why he you know seemed kind of neutral to positive on Chief Alinewick, and and he at one you know I would tell him like. You know, if if basically some version of real black people are opposed to Chief Alina Wake. And and he was a super mild mannered guy, but at one point he just lost it. I mean, he's like, Stop telling me what real black people do. Wow. Stop telling and, and 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 if you think about it, like that's an awful lot of identity based activism is is articulating a standard of authenticity and telling people that they're not living up to it. Right? As opposed to saying, huh. Um, being black or Asian or Latino uh, is a range, not just of cultures and nationalities, but it's also a range of personality types and sexual orientations and religions. And I'm really curious about the ways that that manifests in the world. I'm going to let the, the, the amazing mosaic of black people define for me what black is, right? As opposed to having having kind of a, a, um, this standard of authenticity based on an imagined ideology and superimpose that on people. In any case, that's what I did. And when he like lost it on me, I think that that was, you know, probably the last time I went around telling people uh, what their authentic self should be. And, and I take that, it was a gift that he gave me, even though in the moment it burned. And, and Doug's approach to social change was watch what people are doing and 
watch where things are healthy and positive and help that be the case. And he was like, you know, outside Allen Hall where 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 we were president and vice president of the of the dormitory, people like to hang out and they have to sit on this cold cement and we should have benches where they can sit. And it was a Jane Jacobs approach to social change. Pay attention to people in their natural habitats and what makes them happy and help them achieve that. And sometimes uh, the solution is simple, and it's actually better if it's simple. It's actually better if it's simple, right? Uh, if you can improve people's lives in ways that don't require major surgery, you should do that. I appreciate his example. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. You told one story that, again, some of your stories, man, I was like, wow, uh, like uh, grateful that you were sharing it. You told the story, by the way, I could relate to so much of this. So you're having a terrible travel day and uh, it seems like you're going to miss a shuttle that is going to make you late to get back to your family. Your wife's going to, to be uh, furious. Uh, and everyone on this bus is like a white dude in khakis and there's a, a bus driver that has sat them all and you're afraid you're going to miss this shuttle. Uh, and so you say something to the bus driver about how, like, I can't believe that you have, uh, kicked like the only non-white dude, like off of this shuttle bus. Uh, and, and then she becomes very afraid. And not only that, like she didn't kick me off the bus. She just didn't invite me on the bus first. And, and, uh, I wound up being like last in line. And the reason for that was because I was looking at my phone. Right. And, and now I had signed up earlier to take the shuttle. And so I figured that like there was some list and I'd be called off the list. So, you know, I wasn't entirely in the wrong, but you could easily have like, if, if I was even had an, an iota of generosity towards this bus driver, she's running late. It's like six in the morning in LA, you know, she's harried and she's like getting a group of people on the bus as quickly as possible. And I'm the distracted guy looking at my phone and she's not <laughs> leaving me off the bus. She's just like, you know, it's your job to get on the bus. Right. And, and, and I was thinking to myself, well, my name's on some list somewhere. And, and, and that's when I, I say, you know, oh yeah, of course, leave the brown guy off the bus. And, and this look of sheer terror crosses her face, like sheer terror. And she goes inside and I see her having this, this like intense conversation with the desk clerk. And what she's basically doing is she's like preempting whatever I might, my, my possible complaint. Like she is having the desk clerk document that, you know, she didn't do anything racist or wrong that, you know, uh, 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 just in case I accused her of something. And I thought to myself, I, I could accuse her of something. And in the era in which we live, my accusation would be taken probably without that much investigation. And this is a 12 or $15 an hour, 
you know, shuttle bus driver and I am, you know, a reasonably high-powered knowledge worker. And as I write in the book, I probably went to school with some of the people up the chain and the bus company, whatever, right? And it's, I have power. And telling somebody else that they have committed a racist act or an act that is racialized is an accusation with power. And when it is said with somebody with power, it can lead to bad things. And and I knew that abstractly, and I'd certainly read a number of stories along those lines, which made me uncomfortable. Like I was like, this is a terrible thing that's happening to this museum curator or, or you know, whatever this uh, this janitor at this at Smith College, uh, um, famous story that happened that was in the New York Times. But now I was the person who was. Uh, in in an indirect way, kind of accusing somebody of of doing something bad to me on account of my race, and that person was terrified. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be this guy, and I don't think that every misunderstanding should be immediately racialized if there is no evidence of that, and that somebody should be scared to death of losing their hourly wage as a result of it. Now. As I write in the book, and Andrew, as you, as you said earlier, there's also incidents where I've been working in my parents' subways in which something happens that is clearly race racist, not just racialized, and which I have had to, you know, swallow my dignity, right? And so both of these things occur in our world. Both of these things occur in our world. But but here's what I'm clear about. My experience of racism as a worker in my parents' subways as a kid is not neutralized or made better by my accusation of somebody, of a shuttle bus driver doing, doing something racist towards me if the act that they are committing is not in fact racist. Again, the fact that you were able, were able to own the uh, substance of that situation, even as you're relating your, your, your behavior, uh, I thought was really um, compelling uh, and you you observe that in terms of the relative privilege or power in American life, uh, a lot of it is around education, uh, and that that's going to be something. Uh, unfortunately, that's fueling our political polarization in a particular way. Um, and that uh, one of your concerns is that there are people who uh, emphasize different forms of marginalization, even while they have like a ton of uh, educational privilege, and then you're, you're looking around saying like, "Hey, like, are, are you are you really?" uh oppressed or um uh unprivileged relative to the uh the bus driver or the like the person who is working at the janitorial staff and at the university. Yeah, I mean Andrew this is this was the centerpiece of your campaign and and I'm, I don't think it, I think it says a lot about you that that you are focusing entirely on me in this podcast even though so much of who you are about as a presidential candidate and a mayoral candidate and what the forward party is about is that the our our economy has fundamentally shifted and it leaves vast swaths of people out. And we don't have an answer to that going into the future, right? And so I write a little bit about this, but you're, I mean, I just, it should just be said, you're the national leader in this area and we should all appreciate what you have done in bringing this conversation to the fore. And and I am certainly one of those. So listen, there's an awful lot of talk and I think it is, it is legit and real about the power associated with being male, with being white, with being quote unquote able-bodied, 
What about the power associated with being book smart? If you're book smart in a knowledge economy, boy, that is a that is just that is a an unbelievable amount of power, right? There are just things I can't do. Like I can't play a guitar as much as I've tried. I can't really shoot baskets. I'm not very good at basketball as much as I tried. Can fix a car, but I can put together a speech. I have an innate sense of strategy for an organization. I can read a room, right? I'm a knowledge worker. And in the the vast majorities of human societies, in the vast majority of eras, my set of skills would be not especially important. Not, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't shoot an arrow. I can't ride a horse. Uh, um, I'm not, I'm not a warrior, right? Uh, but in this particular time and place, the small set of things that I'm good at is king. It's highly rewarded. It wow. is, it is highly desirable. And I just don't understand why we don't think of it as a massive privilege to have book smarts in a knowledge economy. Forget access to education. All, all of us know people who had access to amazing educations who just weren't book smart, right? And so let's be honest about that. And and I think one of the things about our current discourse is it doesn't engage in that at all. Like I'll, I'll never forget, I, I want to relate two quick stories. I actually forget whether these are in the book or not. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah you tell, that's amazing. So, so I was at, uh, um, uh, I was at a small college in Ohio. It was either Oberlin or Kenyon, actually. I don't remember exactly which one. And I'm meeting with uh, um, the multicultural student group, right? The students of color. And I yeah, let, let me say, I, I get it. Like being uh, being a Latino kid or an African American kid in like rural Ohio at a largely white campus. Like I, I get that there's a certain amount of alienation that comes that comes with that, especially if you are from a family background or an economic background that that is not that is different from the ones that most of your classmates. But I'm in this I'm I'm sitting with these students and there's a lot of talk of of oppression and et cetera it's said marginalization and I'm listening and I turn around and I and I and I look for a second at the at the white woman who has set up the the tea and coffee and cookies and she is like looking at these students with her mouth agape and and half of her teeth are missing. And I'm like, what is going on in rural Ohio in 2015? It's like meth and opioids. And it would just, I just think it would have been nice for the students at Oberlin or Kenyon to just maybe moderate their con their talk about being oppressed around the woman who was making $13 an hour, missing half her teeth, setting up their cookies, you know, and, and, and note, I am not accusing anybody of anything. No, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying let's pay attention to the world, right? Like I remember I, I tell the story towards the end of my book. Um, my first year at Oxford was really hard. I mean, it was really emotionally hard, right? It was really emotionally hard. And and at the end of that year, I take a trip with my dad to India, and I've got this whole, like, you know, ideological story of, like, how Oxford doesn't like 
that the empire has struck back and there's all these Asian students at Oxford and like Oxford is making it deliberately hard for them. And it's this colonial mentality. And, you know, we, the oppressed are rising up. And my dad looks at me and he points to this leprous beggar child on the street, points to one of them. There must be dozens of them on the street in front of us, points to the one and said, if you're oppressed, what word do you have for him? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> like if, 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 there are not enough mental gymnastics in the world for me and a leprous beggar child to belong in the same category and for that category to be called oppressed. Okay, so if that's the case, right, if, if there are actually like billions of people in the world who live on less than $6 a day, true, okay, and if I can't get through breakfast without spending $6, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's true for me. Maybe, maybe I should just think of myself as something other than oppressed. Well, what what would it look like to think of myself as privileged, and to embrace that privilege, and to then ask the question, what's the responsibility that ensues from that? And actually, how wonderful is it to think of oneself as privileged, right? That that that, and and this is partially a religious thing, like. God has blessed you, which, by the way, is like base, the, the basic message of the Quran. God has blessed you. Now it is your job to be a mercy to other people. That is actually massively liberating. And it's massively inspiring. Like, why not walk around the world thinking to yourself, I am amongst the most privileged people in human history, which for most of us is objectively true. Okay, now what can I give to others? Uh, that's a very different message than a lot of people are getting for sure. And a message that uh, I I think is empowering. Yeah. Right. You know, my, my son, uh, my older son was in a, a diversity program, <clears throat> like this intensive summer diversity program last summer. And he comes home one day and he's like, dad, how come only the white Christian kids get to call themselves privileged? I'll repeat that, right? How come only the white Christian kids get to call themselves privileged. And it just seems crazy that, that we don't consider people's cultural identities a privilege. I mean, how much time do I spend in my home telling my kids that their faith is Islam, that their heritage from India, that their, that their citizenship in America is a privilege and they're supposed to make the most of it? that their family lineage is a privilege and they're supposed to make the most of it, not in a way that's meant to be kind of the anxiety of influence, right? But in a way that's meant to be empowering. You have the wind at your back. What will you do with it, right? It just seems, you know, again, it it's objectively true that we're amongst the most privileged people in human history. It's also beautifully inspiring for us to embrace that. Yeah, it, it, it gives us more control of our own destiny and uh, more of an eye for the impact we can have on the world. Um, it's certainly a much better way to approach uh, your interactions with others than uh, to what, what you said in the book. And there are a lot of quotes I love in the book, but you talked about how, look, something can be a useful lens, but you don't want to have it permanently change your eyesight so that you, you only see uh, like like the the wrongs of the world or like the weaknesses of institutions. Right. 
Yeah, it, you know, it, I think I think um, an awful lot of of um, of anti racism, et cetera. It's a really interesting and useful critique. I I don't know if it's a great paradigm, and I I definitely don't think it's a good regime. By regime, I mean like like uh, something that gets implemented into the world, right? But it's really interesting to constantly be thinking. Are are there ways that racism is affecting this situation? Should we should we should we be should we be attuned to that? I think the question that is absolutely the case. We should always be attuned to the possibility of that. We should watch out for it. We should gather evidence around it. It could be the case that a shuttle bus driver leaves me out because I'm brown. It's not it's not crazy for me to consider that a possibility. But it is totally unfair for me to accuse somebody of that without evidence, especially when that accusation is power, right? And so that's an interesting critique, a paradigm, and a regime. And, you know, we talk a lot at Interfaith America about the metaphor of potluck nation, that, that we can't have a diversity paradigm that's a battleground, right, where there's only the wicked and the wounded. And, and if you're, quote, unquote, dominant culture, you're the wicked, and you have to confess your privilege, and then you go through this strange alchemy, and you're now an ally. But if you're the wounded, then the only opportunity you have, the only script, is to constantly recount your pain and your wounds. Yeah, but That's a form of entrapment, right? Yeah, It's a form of entrapment. What, what we should be thinking about is we're a potluck, and you're welcoming the distinctive and delicious convert, con, con, uh, contributions of diverse people and nurturing creative combinations amongst them. That's, that's the metaphor. Uh, yeah, you, you talk in the book about how there are some bright black uh, high school students who get pushed by well-intended teachers and mentors to write uh, essays about how pain, painful their past is and how difficult things were. Uh, and uh, you describe it as like the single story, which is like, oh, there's a single story that defines groups of people. And so if you're from this group, then you should go along with what these institutions want. And some of these students were like, what if that's not me? Or what if that's not my reality? Or like, what if I would rather just talk about something else about myself <laughs> rather than um, some painful experiences I've overcome? Right, you know, the single story was was a TED talk uh, um, uh, by Adichie. I think I think is the name of the uh, of the writer and speaker. This notion of we're in 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 a particular paradigm of diversity work, people are handed an invisible script where some people have to constantly confess their guilt and other people have to constantly recount their pain. That just doesn't make sense to me, right? Like, like I my kids are telling me all the time that they have a set of like well-meaning adults in their lives who constantly want to hear about how terrible their experience with Islamophobia is. So my kids have been called some ugly names in the playground. That is real. I'm glad that there are adults who are tuned to that. But what they get from Islam is infinitely more important than how they have been hurt by Islamophobia. And there doesn't seem to be that many well-meaning adults in the current era interested in that. And that's wow. a problem. That's a problem. Yes. That's really profound uh, where, I mean, I, I personally, like I, I try and see how my kids are growing up. Um, they don't seem that attuned to uh, racism. Um, I, I'm not sure how much has happened to them as yet. Uh, but to the extent that I had a lot of teasing or um, uh, even bullying uh, when when I was growing up, and I responded to it in various ways and I became... 
um, you know, an angry Asian guy who went to the gym a little bit too much. <laughs> but, 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 they're, they're, but like put, putting yourself in one of these uh, buckets, uh, and you actually don't use this language in the book, but I love it. It's like the wicked versus the wounded. Um, you know, like most of us are um, much more than uh, that, that set of experiences. Uh, and, and, and really one of the, the things I just realized that you did in your book is that you actually put yourself in the, the shoes of the wicked <laughs> occasionally, even though, you know, in your case, uh, you know, that was often, um, uh, you know, very, very much contextual. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, look, I, I think that I, I, th racism is deforming. I have a close friend, um, <clears throat> who developed a, a really ugly gambling ha addict a habit and um, finally, you know, went to inpatient treatment, a lot of therapy. And when I talked about like what he discovered, when we talked about what, what he discovered uh, um, about himself in the course of this intensive therapy, he was like, a lot of my gambling problem was a response to the racism I experienced as a kid. That wow. is real. That is really, yeah. that is ugly and it is real. And, and, we should be clear-eyed about that, and we should be clear-eyed about other things also, right? That that people are not only a response to the racism that they experienced, they are also people who are positively living out the, the identities that they are proud of. We should give people an opportunity to, to uh, articulate that. If we go to the potluck, uh, we go to the potluck metaphor, we should be welcoming people's contributions, and should we, we should be aware of the barriers to those contributions. Racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, misogyny, these are barriers to people's contributions. They are a violation of the dignity of those people, and they're also things that make the potluck less delicious because they mean fewer contributions. That's dumb. It's yes. dumb and it's bad, right? We should be aware of those things, but what we should not do is tell people we're having a potluck and then tell them all the reasons that we know that they can't bring a contribution because they're too oppressed. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. It's, it, it just, it is demeaning to believe that, that it is demeaning to assume about other people that, that external forces have so, uh, have so oppressed them that they are unable to live in the world as it is. They're unable to everyone can bring something to the potluck that that's a very everyone should bring something to the potluck yeah. that, that that that's like a pretty strong uh principle so you worked in the obama administration on the inaugural faith council uh you you uh were excited about um the possibilities trump becomes president in uh 2016 we we're going through rough times um you've written this book and this book uh, i highly recommend it and uh, i i think it's uh, really important message and uh, well-received message. Uh, we need to build field notes for a diverse democracy. Uh, how high is your concern level? So I'm I'm going to let you close this on like a um, like what are you working on now? What are you excited about? How concerned are you? Um, because even if I rewind to the Obama years, there was like this sense of kind of optimism um, that. Uh, I think has gone very sharply in the other direction uh, over the last number of years. I mean, certainly Trump's victory got me into politics, much to my wife's chagrin. So uh, what are you working on? Like, what are you excited about? And how concerned are you that we're going to end up falling short of uh, of our ideals? 
so we're going to end up falling short of our ideals because that's, that's what ideals are. Right. And, and, and this is one of the reasons I, I love religion as a model of social change because religion is about articulating the cosmic ideal, right? The intersection of Dean and Dunya of, uh, faith and life of the kingdom of God, and then building institutions that help approximate that ideal and move the world closer to it. So I'm not afraid of us falling short of our ideals. I know that we will. I think I'm afraid of us stopping to try. You know, wow. and, and what, what am I, what, and I, you know, I love Bill Clinton's line. Uh, I'll quote two of those lines. One is, um, it's okay if I fail. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I'm happy to be caught trying. I love that line, right? I'm happy to be caught trying. And the second was, there's nothing that's wrong with America that what's right with America can't fix. And I believe that too, right? That, that somebody out there is, is solving the problem on a local level of racial equity in, 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 a, in a healthcare situation. Somebody out there is solving the problem of uh, uh, sexism in the corporate world, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we need to identify those solutions and those leaders and help elevate them and, and scale them. But I want to answer your question directly, Andrew. Wh- wh- what are we working on here at Interfaith America? So this book, we need to build my podcast, Interfaith America with Ibu Patel. We want to help shift the social change conversation from critics to builders. We want to shift the metaphor of diversity work in America from melting pot and battleground to potluck. We want to help facilitate in the next great chapter of American religion. We think we're done with the chapter Judeo-Christian. It did good work in its time. It's time to move into interfaith America. Uh, and we want to convince people that you defeat the things you do not love by building the things you do, and that that is a profound opportunity to be able to build something better. It is holy, it is sacred, and we should take that opportunity and be grateful for it. Builders instead of critics, potluck instead of melting pot, uh, and these institutions as something that we should be uh, reinforcing, improving, celebrating, and maybe occasionally building a new one or two. <laughs> like, uh, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly endorse if people want to follow you, it, it sounds like you have your own podcast, Interfaith America, and uh, you're on social media. Yep, Interfaith America with Ibu Patel, and I'm on Twitter at Ibu Patel. But let's see what happens with Twitter now that uh, now that it's in different hands. In any case, I'm on it for now. <laughs> a lot of people are thinking the same thing, my friend. Well, congratulations uh, on we need to build. We do indeed. It's a great achievement, but it pales in comparison to the achievement of your work uh, as someone who's been in similar types of roles, uh, starting nonprofit organizations. Um, the fact that you've done what you've done over like a multi-decade period, it takes a singular amount of, uh, fortitude, character, perseverance, certainly beyond me. Um, so, uh, congratulations on everything you do. Alhamdulillah, really praise be to God. And, and, and don't say beyond you because you not only built a nonprofit organization, but then you, you ran for president and brought the message of venture into the national conversation. So I appreciate you. And, and, and I look forward to the forward party, Andrew, and, and what's to come from you. Uh, and I look forward to, to the next steps in our, in our friendship and work together genuinely. Let's do it, man. Let's build it, Ibu. Appreciate Indeed. the heck out of you. Thank you. <laughs>